Ellie uh, so powerfully tells a story of um, her family and this partnership that she has um, with a refugee family, which is one of the areas that we as a church over the years have been um, working to serve and grow. And so I want to encourage you, if you didn't, if you weren't here at the very outset of the sermon, each week during this series, we're going to highlight some ministry partners that are local that we can get involved with, that you can get involved with, that we're already involved with as a church. Um, and one of which is World Relief, which um, seeks to serve specifically in the area of refugee ministry. And maybe that's something, an area that God is stirring in your own heart and that you'd find a way um, to, to be a part of that, uh, to, to invest in that. And so I want to encourage you to check out um, our webpage today. You're going to learn more about World Relief, about opportunities, and there's further stories that you're going to hear like Ellie's uh, that are happening in the life of the church and areas that we can grow in and continue to lean in. Um, <clears throat> today is something of a natural national holiday in, in our world. Um, it feels a bit different because there won't be as many Super Bowl parties and, and that sort of thing as there would typically be. But for whatever reason, in our in country, we put a lot of time and energy in, into this football game. Um, and everybody gets together, and everybody watches it, and, and we're all rooting for somebody. And I have no idea um, who's going to win the game. Um, for the first time in my life, I find myself sort of rooting for Tom Brady, which feels weird for me. I think it's because he's close to my age, and I'm, like, rooting for the old guy or something. Um, and, and I have no idea, like, what the commercials are going to be like. I have no idea who's going to score first. And all these things that we talk about and prognosticate about around the events of of this singular game but one thing that i would be willing to to bet um metaphorically that will happen in this game is that at some point in time or another they are going to press pause on the game the referee is going to go to the sideline they will enter uh, under a hood where there's a camera and from every angle possible they're going to watch the play that just happened to see if the call on the field was right or not we call it replay right you go in there there's like you you see it on tv it, you you can zoom in on the exact moment that a player's toe hit the turf to determine if they were inbounds or out of bounds. You can look exactly when the running back's knee hit the ground to see if he had control of the ball or if he didn't have control of the ball and why. Why is that going to happen? Because we have deemed that it is necessary, that it's, it's warranted to make sure that we get it right. right. This didn't used to exist, but now it does because we have this the means, the ability to make sure that a play on the field is called accurately. Because it could determine the outcome of the game. Because there's so much at stake. We want it to be fair, right? We want, we want the outcome to be just. So today we're beginning our, our new series, as you saw in the video, entitled Injustice for All. And we're going to talk about, over the course of the next four weeks, we want to examine God's heart for justice. We want to talk about what does justice look like relationally, what does it look like relationally in terms of a vertical relationship with, with our God, what does it look like relationally as, as we relate to each other, and what does it look like for you and I as followers of Jesus to live justly. 
I think you would have to be living under a rock for some time now to know that this is this is a bit of a hot topic in in our culture. There are there are conversations, meaningful, important conversations happening all over the place around topics of social justice, around topics of racial justice, even around topics of environmental justice. And in every ideology, every political party, every perspective and proposed solution to a perceived injustice, they make their case by citing justice, the need to be just, or that this would be just. But what do we mean by that? What, what does it mean to say that something is, is just? Are, are we talking about the same thing, or we using, are we using the same definition? Are we, are we assuming some kind of cultural understanding of justice, or is it founded in something unchanging? Or rather, someone who is unchanging? I think these are, these are critical questions. Um, they're critical questions in the life of the church. They're critical questions in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, and in our world. And they deserve careful thought in order to gain a, a fuller understanding of what it means when the Bible talks about justice. And it, it talks about it a lot. And so at the outset of this series, I, I want to encourage you to, to check your assumptions. Any, any preconceived ideas, I want us to kind of come into this and build a foundation straight from Scripture about what are we talking about when, when we talk about justice. So let's pray towards that end. Father, we do come um, to your word this morning, seeking to learn and to grow and to discover more about you, who you are, and what you um, do in our world, what you call us to be a part of in our world. And so, God, whatever ideas and assumptions that we bring that, that aren't of you, Lord, we want to we set it all aside, and we want to learn from you this morning. Open our hearts and our minds, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I, I will tell you that in preparation for this series, it's, this is sort of an occupational hazard. Like, you learn so much. Like, the first version of this sermon was like three and a half hours long, so... I've whittled it down to just three hours, um, and we should be good. But there's so much content around this. And, and even today and, and over the next four weeks, this is not going to be an exhaustive study of the idea of biblical justice. What does biblical justice look like? But I hope that it is going to be foundational in us building an understanding and give us opportunities to apply this as the church and in our individual lives. So I want to I just highlight a couple things real quick before we dive into the text this morning. And first, and I, I already mentioned this, but the Bible has a great deal to say on the topic of justice. In fact, we'll, uh, over the course of these next four weeks, you're going to hear us refer to and talk about two Hebrew words oftentimes. The first word is the word mishpah. Mishpah is the Hebrew word most commonly translated as justice, and yet that's even complicated because we have, in our English sense of that word, meaning and, and implications that we apply to it that doesn't necessarily align 
with what scripture. So we gotta, we gotta talk about what does the Bible mean when it talks about mishpat. And that word is used about 400 times in the Old Testament. So frequently. And then alongside of it is this word tzedakah. And tzedakah is, is, is oftentimes translated as righteousness. And these really are companion words. So tzedakah appears about 100 times. And oftentimes you will see them coincide. It's, it's together they form this, this idea of God's vision, God's heart for justice. For example, the, the prophet Amos, and this is one of the more famous passages, and maybe you've heard this before. He so poetically and beautifully and powerfully said it this way. He said, but let justice roll down like water. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then he goes on to start to convict Israel about areas that they're not, they're not acting this way, that, that it doesn't line up to, to this vision that God has for his people. This is, that, that passage is, was a part of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in the Civil Rights Movement. Together, these words, these concepts serve to help us understand God's vision for justice. And so if, if we, as followers of Jesus, if we say we want to we take the Bible seriously, then I think it's incumbent upon us that we take justice seriously. And then secondly, I think just a, a basic sort of working definition of justice is helpful, of biblical justice. And so this is oversimplistic, but, but it gives us something to start from. And I, I want to define justice, mishpat, as in its simplest form, as to set right, to set right. And yet that, that very definition leaves us asking a question. Who, who gets to determine what is right? How, how do we know what is right? Let's turn this morning to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 in verse 14. We're going to read this together and, and we're going to hopefully build a, a, some foundational understanding on this topic of justice in Scripture. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee. So this is, he's just come out of the wilderness now from facing the temptation. And he's, this is the very outset of his public ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues and everyone praised him. So people are starting to hear the good news about the kingdom and they're like, this is, we've been waiting for this. This is, this is exciting stuff. Like he's building momentum. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, imagine this for a moment. Like, if you are a, a first century Jewish man and woman living in, man or woman living in Nazareth, you, you, you're probably familiar with 
Mary's kid, Jesus. You might have even heard some of the like conversations going on about things he's been saying or, or things that people have said he has done. And there's this excitement in the moment. And then he stands and he reads from the prophet Isaiah this promise that Yahweh had said to his people. And he says, today this is happening. It's here and it's me. See, this is where we need to start our conversation. Jesus, in this text, he begins by identifying himself as the person of justice. Jesus is the person of justice. Jesus here is identifying himself as the one who is right and the one who will enact justice. And in doing so, Jesus, in this statement, he is he's revealing his identity as the one who is divine, the one who is God. He rolled up the scroll... He gave it to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Where do we, where do we get our sense of, of justice? Like, you don't teach your kids, right, when one of their siblings has something that they want. Like, you didn't have to teach them. It's like, well, will you come to mom and dad? And you say, well, that's not fair, right? They figured that out on their own. It's, there's something wired into us. I, I uh, just last weekend, I was watching this, um, this documentary on Netflix called uh, My Octopus Teacher. Has anybody seen this? Um, this, this, it's a long story, but this guy, like, he's going through some difficult times, and he finds solace in, in snorkeling out in the kelp, forest and he, he basically befriends this octopus um, and he follows him like every day for a year he goes out and he tries to follow this and he, he kind of documents the life of this octopus it's it really is extraordinary and uh, my wife hated it because she calls them the uh, spiders of the ocean I believe but um, but one of the things I discovered about the ocean in watching this documentary is that it is not a just place in fact, if you live in the ocean, you pretty much swim around trying to eat something and to avoid being eaten. And, and there's no expectation of it. There's no sense of, wow, this is right or this is wrong. And even our humanness and watching it when something that you've been following along with or you see some animal that dies in that moment, that, that's, you feel that. The ocean isn't walking around feeling that. Why? Why is that? Because those fish and those crustaceans and those octopi, I think, is that right? Octopi? They, they don't bear the image of God. Right? The, very, the very fact that you and I have this sense of what is just and what is unjust is a reflection of the image of God in us. And even that in us, right, has been corrupted by the fall. Sin affects that. When Jesus stands up and reads the prophecy from Isaiah and says, this is, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying, I am the person of justice because I am fully God. God is the standard by what we understand what is just and what is unjust. What is just, what is right, is rooted in the heart and the character of God. It's revealed to us through his word and in the person of Jesus. The psalmist in Psalm 89 says it this way. He says, 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Or, or in other words, he's saying this is who you are. You are righteousness and justice. You are love and faithfulness. And some of you know that I'm a, a, a hobbyist woodworker. And uh, I was working on this project once, and I had kind of this old beaten up square that I had, had gotten. And so I was making a cut, and I laid down the square, and I laid a rail against the square to draw out the line because I needed to make a straight cut. And what I had never bothered to do was to check to see if the square was accurate. Well, long story short, it was not accurate. So I laid this out, but the, the very thing that I was using to determine what is right, which all that, that, that is contained in that word mishpah, it, it, like uh, the idea of straightness, of rightness, is, is in that word, like an accurate standard. And so a, a very small error in that square, when traveled over the course of the distance of that cut, led to something being way off. For us as, as men and women, or if, if we want to be people of justice, in order for us to accurately and effectively advocate for justice, we need to know and love and study and imitate the one who is the very definition of justice. He is the standard. And justice is measured by, by his character. A.W. Tozer um, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he's not talking about justice in this, but it, it, it really applies to, to this topic and really any topic as it relates to being a follower of Jesus, being shaped in the image of God. He writes this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact, which is like significant, about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as the most significant messages is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for silence is often more eloquent than speech. Tozer saying, above all else, we, we have to know the standard. We have to know the one who is just. We cannot separate the call to justice from the character of God. E even the most well-meaning efforts for justice apart from him will ultimately produce oppression and tyranny. And I would, I would cite human history as evidence for that. He is the person of justice, and the person of justice then gives us the proclamation of justice. The proclamation of justice. Look back in, in Luke 4. He, he cites Isaiah here, the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
I have uh, uh, this friend. He's a youth pastor in Evanston down in the city. And um, I've known him for probably, I don't know, 15, clo- getting close to 20 years now. And um, Chris is like one of those, like he's kind of a jumpy guy. Like if you come up behind him and sort of like surprise him, like, hey, Chris, you know, he's like ready to take you down like instantaneously. So like one time I'm asking him, I'm like, why are you so like defensive? Like what? And he, he grew up, he was always like the smallest kid in his class. Like, so people were always just picking on him. So he just learned how to defend himself. He learned to be ready for anything. He tells a story about one time he had joined the football team, um, ironically, as the smallest kid in his class in order to just kind of connect with guys and wanted to be a part of something. And, and he discovered that um, some of the older guys on the team had this tradition of, of hazing some of the freshmen. And so when they were in the showers after the, a game or a practice, um, sometimes one of the older guys would come in and they would grab somebody out of the shower and take them out to the sand pit on the track and field uh, field and, and throw them in the sand and just you know, get humiliated, obviously, was, was their objective. And so Chris knew, he was like, my day is just coming and he was going to be ready. And sure enough, like one day he's in the shower, he could see the guys come and there's four or five of them. He gets ready to defend himself, but he, there's just nothing he can do. And as he's fighting them off and, and they're carrying him out, to take him out to the field, he just hears this voice from the corner of the locker room say, put him down. And he said in his voice, it sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> in his head. I put him down. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, um, and this senior captain, the biggest and strongest guy on the football team, stepped in and said, we're not doing this anymore. This, this, is, this is over today, Steve. And somebody with the character and the strength to intervene steps in on behalf of Chris. See, let's return for a moment to this definition of justice. This idea to set right. But to set what right? And who? It's interesting that this passage, um, and others like it in the New Testament, there's a bit of debate around what Jesus means when, when he announces this proclamation. Is this passage, these words of Jesus, to be understood primarily in, in the physical and in the material sense? Or is this a, a spiritual promise? Is he talking about the poor, or is he like in, in the Beatitudes saying the poor in spirit? Is he talking about the physically, uh, politically oppressed, or is he talking about the spiritually oppressed? As if these are, are incompatible views that require us to choose one or the other. And, and I, would, I, I would just say on that, I think it's yes. It's, it's both, right? Do we, we, we can look at the example of Jesus. He heals the sick and he defends the vulnerable. And yet those are signposts to something greater that he has come to do, that he offers. To a fuller vision, a fuller experience of freedom, right? Jesus did not ultimately, in that moment, free Israel from the oppression of Rome. But he did come to offer them freedom from the oppression of sin. Jesus says, he has sent me to declare freedom for the prisoners. And the Apostle Paul describes this freedom in his letter to the Galatians. This is in Galatians chapter 5. He says, for it is for for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm them and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. So he's, he's describing the freedom that is available through the gospel to the, to the slavery of sin. Jesus came to set us free, to make us right, to set us right by grace before a holy God. He came to be the one who justifies us. This, this is his proclamation of justice. I have come as the one, Jesus says, to make you right, to set you right before God. I'm particularly uh, interested in that last statement in verse 19, where he says, I've, I've, proclaimed, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I find that really interesting. What is Jesus referring to here? In the Levitical law, God had established, he had instituted for the people of Israel that every 50th year would be a year of jubilee. In fact, I want to just read real quick for you a little bit of this. If you, later today, when you get some free time, read, read Leviticus 25 because it's, it's mostly about the year of Jubilee and it's fascinating stuff. Um, but let me just give you a taste of this. So he says, count off seven Sabbath years. So God had, just before this, God had instituted that every seventh year would, would be a Sabbath year and you wouldn't, you wouldn't plant your fields. You would let just whatever grew up grow and they would get a, a year of rest. So he says, uh, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath, whew, so that seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seven month on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the, the untended vine. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the field. Can you, it, it goes on, it gets better. Like, it, it, can you imagine, like, this is like a complete cultural, societal reset that God was, had instituted for the people of Israel. Referring to Jesus' proclamation in Luke 4, Ray Ortland says this, he says, Back in the Old Testament, God was already hinting at this. He established an institution called the Year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, Israel was to take the whole year off, cancel all debts, return to its original owners all family property that had been sold or generally be kind and generous to everyone. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. This was everyone's job for the whole year. And it foreshadowed the liberation of Christ. See Galatians 5.1. The cross cancels all our debts. God says we are free to leave the past behind and move on with joyous relief. Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, it's, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. I'm proclaiming the year of Jubilee. I, I have come to offer a reset, to set things right, because I am going to personally take on the death of your sins through grace. And this is absolutely foundationally critical to our conversation about justice. 
Because if we do not as the church, as followers of Jesus, understand ourselves to be the benefactor of God's generous justice to us, if we fail to understand that, then we will fail to understand how to live out our call to be agents of his justice. Jesus, Jesus offered people physical and, and material justice. But it was pointing to something greater. It was pointing to something more, the spiritual freedom of the cross. And he makes this proclamation of justice. And it's in this proclamation of justice that Jesus begins to assemble the people of justice. He calls together the people of justice. Imagine for a moment my friend Chris and, and his experience. Imagine that he had somebody intervene on his behalf and said, hey, put him down. And that as he's leaving that day, the JV team is out there practicing and, and he sees some of the bigger guys going after one of the smaller guys on the team. And imagine if Chris just walked by. Imagine that that he's like, you know what, that's not my problem. Imagine if, if he was like, I got a ton of homework and I got to get home. I'm, I'm really busy. Or imagine if, if he had the strength to intervene but, but chose not to. Like, well, we would all look at that. We would all watch that unfold and say, that's, that's not okay. Like, that's not justice. Jesus tells this story in the Gospel of Matthew where it's, 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 uh, the context is around forgiveness. But there is this servant who owns a great debt, and he comes to the master, and the master is called in the debt, and he says, I can't, I can't pay. Please, for mercy. And, and the master ultimately says, you know what? I'm going to forgive the debt. Go. And he goes from there, and there is another servant who owes him money. And this, this other servant says, I, I'm, I can't pay. I need more time. And this guy has him thrown in prison, and the master hears about the story and goes, and he says, I was merciful to you. You experienced grace, and yet for this person next to you, you had none. He says, this is not okay. Right? Being the recipient of God's generous justice has implications for us as the church. It means something. In fact, from the very time that God chose Abraham to set apart a family that would live in covenant relationship with him, part of that was that they were destined, they were, they're, they're, they were uh, set aside to live out God's purposes in the land. This is from Genesis 18, verse 19. He says, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God's plan was always to set aside a group of people, a family, eventually the nation of, of Israel, the people of God, right? They were supposed to live this out in the land, and when they, when they failed in that regard, God would send a prophet. He would send Isaiah, and he would send Amos, and he would say, guys, this is not, this is not what we have been the benefactors of. We're not living out a view of the character of God. And he would call the people to repent. In the New Testament, this is the church. The Apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear the calling in those verses? When Jesus makes that announcement in a little town of Nazareth in a synagogue, he's proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. He's calling people to believe his message. He's calling people to be set free by his message. And these people who are set free by his invitation then become agents of that message. And this is where we need to start and understand today in this whole scope conversation around justice is this. Is that Jesus, the just one, justifies our unjust hearts by his grace. So that we might become agents of his justice in this world. Let me say that again. Jesus, the just one, justifies our unjust hearts by his grace. So that we might become agents of his justice in this world. What does justice look like? It looks like Jesus. How will people see it? How will they experience it? How will they know it? through transformed people reflecting the heart of God to the world around them. We, we as the body of Christ, we have to care about justice because he cares about justice. We have to care about justice because it's who he is and because it's what he has called his people to be, to be just. And he is the standard. Let me pray for us. Father, we are just um, entering in, dipping our toe into this whole scope that your word paints and gives us and calls us to around the topic of justice. And God, there's so many questions and so many times when we're looking and trying to understand how do we apply this and what does this look like and where do we experience it? And yet, Lord, we need to begin by coming back to you. We need to begin by coming back to the heart of the gospel, to the message of Jesus, to the proclamation that in your generous justice, the debt of my sin has been canceled in you. I've been the, I've been the recipient of it. And so, God, I pray that you would build us to be a group of people who know the character of God and who reflect it to the world around us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.